There's no such thing as a predictable, romantic, comedy-type story. And so as we delve into this story of Leah this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be a work amongst us this morning, that you would speak to us afresh, and that you would help us as we look at Leah to see what it is that you want to reveal to us, challenge us with, comfort us with, speak into our lives, Lord, we pray. Amen. So here we find in the Bible the story of Leah, not a predictable story, but one that shows all the different kinds of nuances that can occur in the tragedy of love. Timothy Keller says the Bible is utterly realistic, showing us that it is always hard and often devastating to not be married, and that it is always hard and sometimes devastating, to be married. The story of Leah is quite something. I don't know about you, but as I look at her, I find her rather mesmerising, because I want to care for her. She's described in the scriptures as the one having weak eyes or tender eyes, And we don't exactly know what that means, but she is then in that verse very quickly contrasted by Rachel, her beautiful sister who is lovely and has a wonderful figure. So we can assume whatever exactly was meant by the phrase weak eyes, that she was not as desirable as her sister Rachel. And I feel for Leah, and I imagine many of us do when we read the story, because at some point or another, we'll have experienced to lesser or greater degrees what it is like to not be the desired one. And that feeling is crushing. It's confidence-destroying. It's embarrassing. It's hurtful. And it's downright rubbish. Perhaps we've experienced it at a job interview, in the playground, in a competition. We only have to watch The X Factor to see there are Rachels and there are Leahs in this life. Maybe we've experienced it in a bar, in old age or in young age, in church, in friendship groups. I was chatting to the ladies in the kitchen this morning about what it was like to be evacuated in the war and how they were treated. Sometimes they were seen as the Leahs, not the Rachels. And our Leah had to have this fact rubbed in her face every day as she lived alongside Rachel, the desired one. And two very um, important things to share with you before we go much further. 
Um, Firstly, it can be very easy to hear the story of Leah and to want to have it removed from the Bible. After all, it is just so awful. Why doesn't God directly speak out against this kind of situation where a father feels he has to marry off his daughter and that she has to stay in a loveless marriage, dealing with all the horrible tension of living alongside another wife? Why doesn't God just kind of come down and smite Laban and shout out, polygamy is wrong, it's a terrible thing? The thing with um, the Bible is that when a loving father tells a child not to do something, but doesn't tell them why, it is harder for them not to do the wrong thing. Here in this story, God is plainly telling his children why polygamy is so harmful. As the story unfolds, he is wooing his chosen people away from such behavior and is outlining to them the consequences of it. God is utterly against it. And in the story, we get to see how much it hurts Rachel, how much it hurts Leah, and ultimately how much it hurts Jacob. As Leah's children grow up, they end up hating Rachel's children, and they get rid of Joseph, selling him off to a life of slavery. And then Laban lives an agonized latter part of his life, crying for the son he believes to be dead. God outlies for us in all plain view, the horrificness of such a situation and woos us away from it. Back to him, to following his ways, where relationships are built on true love and respect. And the second thing that I need to mention is that I fell in love with the story of Leah when I was actually reading a children's Bible story book to my daughter, Ella. And uh, the lady who wrote the children's Bible book uh, was very influenced by her pastor, Tim Keller. And so in preparation for today's sermon, I actually looked at a lot of Tim Keller's sermons online. And I rarely do this, but today I really sensed that the message he was bringing was one for us today at Christ Church. And so a lot of my sermon today and some of its structure relies upon his content. And Keller draws out for us six lessons from the story, three that are really bad news and three that are fantastic news. And we're going to look at those. Firstly, There are repercussions to any sin. Whenever we mess something up, God is able to forgive us and God will restore us. But we are foolish if we don't acknowledge that there will be shockwaves of sin. That sin comes back and bites us. And we find this especially true in family life. When we see folk repeating rubbish behaviour that they've experienced as children, we think, why are you doing that? Don't you remember how terrible it was when your mum did that to you? Why are you now doing the same thing to your daughter? And we get in these cycles of sin. Sin has ongoing 
shockwaves and repercussions. And this is terrible news for us. And we see it, don't we, in this story um, with Laban and Jacob. And just as Isaac, Jacob's father, had favoured Esau, now Jacob favours Rachel and all the emotions in that just messes up this family. So the first bit of bad news, sin has repercussions. The second bit of bad news is that Leah, in this story, although I love Leah in this story, um, she actually represents to us disappointment. Just imagine for a minute being Jacob. He was in love with Rachel. He was imagining happy ever afters. He was infatuated by her. He was totally desiring of her and wanting her to fulfill him. And he was looking to her. And then he wakes up in the morning. And Leah is next to him. Wonder how that must have felt. The disappointment and the upset, the horribleness of that situation. Back in those days, of course, there was no electricity. She would have been heavily veiled. um, and, And so the situation occurred. And what we need to realize is that from Eden onwards, this side of eternity, whatever we conceive to be Rachel, so whatever hopes we have for love, for marriage, for career, for fame, for a project, in the morning we will wake up and find that it is Leah. Because in this life there are disappointments C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it best. He says this, Most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some kind of subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel and no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean, says C.S. Lewis. The spouse may be a good spouse, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and the job interesting, but something has evaded us. Just this week at the school gate, I was listening to someone complaining about the lack of romance in her life. And clearly at that particular present moment in time, her marriage felt like Leah, not like the Rachel hoped for. Even in good circumstances, in this world, we will face disappointment. Disappointment. 
So Tim Keller says there are four ways that we can respond to this in our life. Firstly, we can blame the things that we have and we can start seeking a better partner or a better job. But this leaves you looking like a fool. Secondly, you can blame yourself. But that leads to depression and to self-hatred. Thirdly, you can blame the world. Well, life just sucks, doesn't it? But then you just become another one of life's hard cynics. But fourthly, you can blame reality. You can say, well, if nothing in this world is Rachel, then there must be something beyond this world that will satisfy me. I'm made for something eternal. And that makes you a Christian. How about taking a risk this term and inviting yourself or a friend to come on Alpha and consider what a Christian is? Because the other alternatives don't look very attractive. Being foolish, self-hating or cynical sucks. And we have amazing good news because we know we have an eternal hope where we shall never be disappointed. God will never disappoint us. His love for us is perfect. And so the bad news so far is that sin has repercussions. Life this side of eternity is marked by disappointments. And thirdly, we make everything worse when we idealise family. Now, the Bible for sure does come against uh, kind of traditional bad stuff. Like it does come against orgies and adultery and, you know, just general excess in our living. And it, it speaks out about those things. But, you know, it also speaks out against conservative idols. It speaks out against building your life on having a spouse, perfect children and immaculate house. This is also flawed. This is also an idol. This is also things that will lead you away from God. Because when we make family life an idol, we get into all kinds of trouble. We over-depend upon those around us. We become controlling, manipulating, or judging those in our families. And as we look into Leah's life, we see that for a while she tries to gain value and worth through having children. But it doesn't work. And her terrible situation means that she was able to see more quickly than some of us that having a spouse and having a children do not make life perfect. They cannot replace the identity God gives to us when we come to him, nor can they compare to the perfect love that the Lord offers to us. And so today, let's ask God where we need our perspective on this brought into line with us. So we take the pressure off our children, off our spouse, off our parents.
We come to the Lord so that he will satisfy us and our deepest needs. And then we're free to love appropriately all of those people that God will place in our lives. And so we've had some bad news, and now for the good news. Um, Firstly, God graciously works with people who've just messed it up, um, which I just find really encouraging because I feel like I mess up a lot. Laban, Jacob, and Leah, they all mess up in this story, but we need to know that the Bible is not a book about heroes that we are to emulate. It's a book about God. It's a book about God who continues to work with his people who resist his grace, people who don't deserve his grace, people who don't even seek his grace and don't even appreciate it when they receive it. And this is great news because God chooses to work with people like that, which means that he can work with you and with me. And that's exciting. The second bit of good news is that God works through weak people. Jacob had um, conned his father into blessing him. And uh, his brother Esau had got really, really cross about this. Jacob was a brilliant con artist. Jacob meets Laban. Laban is his match. Notice in the text, he says, you know, what, what do you want, Jacob? And Jacob says, well, I want Rachel. <sighs> he showed his weak point to Laban. That was foolish. And Laban says this, he says, well, I'd, I'd rather give her to you than to someone else. Read the small print, Jacob. He doesn't actually promise her to you, does he? Jacob has met his match in Laban. Laban is a great con artist. And Jacob begins to see this in the story. And he sees that he is just like Laban. And he doesn't like what he sees. In our lives today, God will often use those uncomfortable relationships to highlight to us things that we need to grow in or fresh perspective on our own lives. And so when we come across Laban's, we need to ask God, God, how do you want to shape me through this? God works through weak people to change us. The final bit of wonderful news that needs highlighting for this story is that God will work in the weakest of people. The Lord loves and holds dear those that the world rejects. Leah has no one. She's totally trapped. She's in an awful place. And God gives her a life-saving gift. Let's just have... A look at this. As we look at those final verses where she, she's giving um, birth and having her own children, God sees her pain. Leah begins to call on the Lord, and as she does, it changes her. In the Old Testament, there are two words for God. There's Elohim, which was a general word used by everyone for God. 
And then there was a new word, Yahweh. And God gives the word Yahweh to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob when they meet him. It's a personal name that he gives to the people through whom he's going to outwork his salvation plan. Now Leah starts calling Yahweh, Yahweh. What's going on here? How does Leah know? Somehow Leah must have heard the story of salvation somehow. And each time she has a child, she hopes that the child will fulfill her, that it will bring her honor, and that it will cause her husband to love her and become attracted to her. But she's also calling on Yahweh. She must have been beginning to understand that there was a promise on this people group, that there was a promise of a seed. There was a promise of salvation, a Messiah to come. And she began just not to believe in a general God at the top of the ladder to whom she must submit, which is what everyone else in the world believed, but she began to grab hold of the idea of a personal Lord, of Yahweh, the God who will save by grace. And Keller says, at the very, very end, something changes for Leah. Something radically changes. She turns from saying, now my husband will love me, to this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And finally, there's no talk about her husband. What's happened for Leah is that through this suffering, she's stopped turning to her husband. She stopped looking to her children. She stopped looking to anything else. And she said, I'm going to praise the Lord. And at that moment, she gets the gift of life. She gets her life back. Leah, who'd been so abused and used by Laban and Jacob, stood up and turning from all idolatry, she gets her life back. Only God can fulfill her, and she's going to praise him. And look who that child is in the Bible. That child where she says, I'm going to praise the Lord. It's Judah. If you know your Bible, you'll know how significant this is. What's happening is Leah is becoming the mother of Jesus. Judah is the seed. It is down through Judah's line that we get Jesus. And so God takes Leah and says, you are going to be the mother of Jesus. Leah, the outsider. Leah, the ugly. Leah, the rejected. Because she grabbed hold with faith, she got her life back from the people who ruined it for her. And she goes ahead of her husband. She understands the gospel better than her husband. And so God makes her the seed. God always loves those that others don't. 
He says to the unloved wife, to the downtrodden, to the ones the world has laughed at, to the unfulfilled Rachels of this world, God says there's a heavenly bridegroom, there's a heavenly love that is out of this world that will totally satisfy you and it's available to you. Come and receive. Because I love you. And to me, you are Rachel. You are Rachel. I love you. This is an incredible story. What happened to Leah should never happen to anyone. It's totally wrong. And God reveals that to us. But he is at work constantly wanting to woo us to him. Get us out of the repercussions of sin and bring us back to his ways. And so as we come this morning and we have communion, let us receive Jesus' love for us. Amen.